Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. We're going to look this morning. Well, before I even go there, did not Pastor Kelly do a great job last weekend? Woo. The great word. So grateful. Um, it's good to have a little bit of a break. And it's good to know Pastor Kelly's going to bring the word. And he did a wonderful job last weekend. I'm so grateful for him and all of our staff team. Also want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We're thankful for you and Reach Church DeSoto joining us this morning and the venue service down the hall. So good to have you here with us. Revelation 17, uh, we, we pick up Revelation 16, uh, the seven bowls of judgment. And uh, God reduced the earth to a parking lot in anticipation of the return of Christ that we'll see in Revelation 19. In Revelation 17 and 18, we take another and the final of all these interludes. And we will look at Babylon, the fall of Babylon. Babylon is comprised of false religion and false government. In 17, we'll see the fall of Babylon, false religion, Next week in 18, we'll see the fall of Babylon, false government. You remember in Genesis 9 and 10, I think it's why it's so important that we knew Genesis before we studied Revelation. But in Genesis 9 and 10, after the fall, or after the flood, Noah established two things. Number one, he instituted sacrifice. That in order to atone for the sins of man, someone has to die. He brought it in from the Garden of Eden that sin can only be dealt with by means of atonement. That someone's got to die and we rest and we trust in that person for our salvation. And throughout the Old Testament, God gets very specific about who that person is. He must be a Jew. He must be from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Jesse and David, Joseph, all the way down to Jesus that this is the only true religion that honors God. A divine man, a God-man, who dies under the wrath of God for the sins of man, and we trust in that person, and we are saved by means of faith. And so Noah, after the flood, he institutes sacrifice, one true religion. He also institutes government. God says in Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. It's the institution of government. That the foundation of true government must be upon God and the dignity of man. So you've got the institution, one true religion. Salvation by means of atonement in one man who comes and dies. And the institution of true government. But then what happens in the very next chapter in Genesis 11? What we see there is one man who leads the people to build a tower, the Tower of Babel. And it will be a means by which man crea worships creation and worships himself. It is man replacing and rejecting God. They come together to build this tower, and you'll remember God, in act of mercy, strikes them with different tongues, and now what do they do? They spread out all over the world, and nations are born. And wherever man goes, 
you will always find him inventing his own religious system. And out of that religious system, you will find all forms of false government. So all forms of false religion and false government, they all trace back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Babel means the gate of God. God's going to say it's the place of confusion. It's Babylon, the mother of all false religions. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, we'll encounter the first of those pagan nations being what? Being Egypt. And we will see the invention of a religious system with a multitude of gods. And you'll see Pharaoh establishing himself as government. Well, here at the end, we're going to find all these religious systems and all these, these uh, forms of, of false government, and they will come back up underneath one man. Not Nimrod as it was at the Tower of Babel, but they're going to come underneath who? Antichrist, the beast. But there's going to be another man who comes, isn't there? Not another Adam, it'll be the last Adam. And he will come and he will put down all false religion and all false government and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Psalm 2 says, he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron and he shall shatter them like earthenware. So we're gonna see. God's gonna let us in. He's gonna let us know uh, what is going to happen to false religion and false government? I love this about the, the word of God. It allows us to read tomorrow's newspaper as if it were yesterday's news. That God prides himself on the fact that he knows the end, not just at the beginning. He knows the end before the beginning. And in every aspect of this, God will make clear to us that all of this is occurring according to his sovereign plan. Let's pray together and we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, these things that we would have had no way of knowing had you not revealed yourself in your word and your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that all of us today, whatever else is going on in our life, for this moment, for this hour, for this short, brief period of time, we'd be able to put all the distractions aside and focus upon you and your word. God, we claim the promise today that your word will not return void. We believe with all of our heart, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. God, instruct us. Today, by means of your spirit and your word, if there's somebody here that needs correction, correct them. Your word says, those whom you love, you discipline. God, for those that are downtrodden and discouraged, I pray that you'd speak to them a word of hope. Pray that all of us would be drawn closer to Christ. And if there's anybody watching today or here in this room that doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would see that today is a day of grace, salvation, You've said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I pray today they would see the depth of their own sin. They'd say that, see the beauty of Christ who died on the cross for their sins. The only true form of religion that honors you 
and they would trust in Christ as the only means of salvation, turning from their sin and turning towards Jesus and acknowledging him as king. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So God's letting us in on the judgment of this great harlot. She's called a harlot because she is unfaithful and she is dangerous. In the Old Testament, the faithful of Israel are called the bride of God. In the New Testament, the faithful are referred to as the bride of Christ. False religion is called a harlot because she is unfaithful to God and she is dangerous. And she's referred to here as the great harlot because she sits on many waters, meaning false religion is all over the world, permeates every aspect of our world. And in verse 2, you see her influence, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. She influences the powers and the authorities of earth to commit all kinds of acts of immorality. It says here that the world is drunk with her wine, that the world is infatuated with false religion, and it blinds them and it numbs them to the truth of the gospel. It's a good reminder that only by means of God's grace in opening our eyes to the depth of our sin does anyone come to faith in Christ. And the beauty of this is when a person comes to faith in Christ, that's when they come to their senses. So you see the world drunk on the wine of immorality of false religion, but when a person comes to faith in Christ, they sober up. They become wise. Uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, making wise the simple, Psalm 19 says. It, when I read this, it made me think of Jesus when he takes his disciples to the other side of the sea, uh, to the Decapolis in the area of the Gentiles, and there he confronts a, a demon, the Gerasene demoniac. And do you remember the picture of that Gerasene demoniac? He's naked, he is blind to his own immorality, and he's chained up amongst the tombs because he's considered dead, and he's cutting himself, he's inflicting self-harm, and he's chained up because he's dangerous to other people. In many ways, that is a picture of the fallen world apart from faith in Jesus Christ. They're drunk on the immorality of the world. They're blind to their own immorality. And they're spiritually dead. And they hurt themselves and they hurt others. But you'll remember that Gerasene demonic, Jesus cast out the demon and I love the picture of him at the end of that story that he's clothed and he's seated and he's in his right mind. I mean, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's when you sober up to the reality of who you are and who God is and what your sin is and where it came from and the only solution being Jesus Christ. So we see a picture of here in fat, of a world infatuated and drunk on the wine of false religion and it's immorality and the only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ look at verse 3 and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns so we see a scarlet beast we know this beast we've seen this before with the seven heads and the ten horns to be the the beast of antichrist 
and the woman is sitting on the beast. Meaning the beast, Antichrist, at least during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, is going to support false religion. That during the, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Antichrist, false government, is going to coexist peacefully with false religion. Uh, the picture is that at the end, in the tribulation, what will unite man will not primarily be economics. What will unite man will not primarily be politics. It'll be religion. In so many ways, we think of the world as becoming less religious. But biblically speaking, the world is going to become more religious in a negative sense with false religion. And you're already seeing this occur today. I mentioned it in 16 that uh, atheism to some extent is dying out. And people are becoming more religion, but it's, religion, but it's a religion of tolerance. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the important picture here is that the woman sits on the beast. Meaning all these kings and all these kingdoms do not represent many religions that they all fall into the category of false religion. So in our eyes, as we look at the world and all these false, we, we see many gods and many religions, but they're all the same religion represented by the woman, the harlot. They all exalt man. They all reject the one true God of the Bible. They all hate and reject the people of God, Jews and Christians alike. And they're all represented by this woman who sits on the beast. And then in verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with a gold and, and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and of unclean things and of her immorality. So the harlot of false religion, we see her attractive, seductive. Purple and scarlet were, were colors that demonstrated uh, power. And uh, gold and precious stones demonstrates her wealth and her, uh, her riches. All of the false religions of the world, to some extent, appear attractive, wealthy, powerful, but they all produce immorality. As I was saying this, I couldn't help but think of when Faith and I were in, uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia, and we uh, went to a Buddhist temple in this town that was, was uh, there was so much poverty. The one building that was wealthy and powerful was the temple. A Buddhist temple, beautiful. It, it, it was a picture of wealth and riches and attractive. But we went into that temple and we were in there no more than two minutes. And just by means of the images that were on the wall, you could see that it was encompassed by all kinds of sinful immorality. All the false religions of the world, they, they, they to some extent, they look beautiful, but they always produce immorality and abominations. They don't produce, as, as we know in our world, the false religions of the world, they don't produce orphanages. They don't produce the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or hospitals. When you go overseas to various places around the world, almost every hospital you find was founded by the church, by Christians. That the false religions of the world, they don't create Samaritan's Purse. They don't create disaster relief. Even as you look today in Europe with the humanitarian crisis that's occurring there, it is the church that is leading the charge to meet the needs of those people. Not produced by the false religions of the world, but produced by Christianity, by the church. 
And what is Christianity, when you think about this, when the, the alluring nature of false religion, what does Christianity have that is alluring? We have a Savior, don't we? But Isaiah 53, you remember it says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we are attracted on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. But I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost Sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. We cling to Christ. We cling to a cross. And the beauty of Christianity is not seen in the impressive nature of our buildings. It's not seen in our adherence to rules. And it's not by the productions of pageantry. But the beauty of Christianity is seen in the transformed lives of those who trusted in Jesus Christ. And their lives now demonstrate the beauty of what Christ and Christ alone can produce. As we live, as, as Paul says, as stars shining in the universe, midst of a wicked and corrupt generation, we hold forth the word of truth. That's the beauty of Christianity. Look at verse 5. It says, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. It says here that a mystery, a mystery is something that's hidden that's got to be revealed. Babylon is a mystery, meaning it's something that the world can't see, that it's hidden to the world, but it's revealed to us by Christ. Well, what's the mystery that's revealed? The mystery that's revealed is that Babylon is not any one specific religion. It's not even one specific location. Babylon represents all the false religions of the world. And again, the world looks at these comparative religions and sees a variety of religions, and God says, no, they're all Babylon. And they all trace their religion back to Genesis 11. You've heard me say this before, but there are only two religions that are out there. There's the God of grace and the Bible who's revealed himself to us, who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins, to atone for our sins, and salvation comes not by our own work. It comes by means of faith in him. And there are all the other self-help religions of the world where man invents his own religious system. And it's normally a system that exalts man. You do the work and you're glorified. And that's all the false religions of the world. All tracing their, their, lineage, their lineage, their origin back to Genesis 11. It's the, so Babylon is the mother of harlots. Man is not a natural born atheist. As I'd say, you got to send them to college to become atheists. Man, man is a worshiper. God, as you've heard it said, God has all of us have a, a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. We're going to worship. Everybody, to some extent, is worshiping something. The problem is, due to the sinful nature of our hearts, we tend to create or invent gods that are tolerant of our sins, don't we? We don't tend to naturally, due to our sin, gravitate towards a God who condemns our sin and calls upon us to humble ourselves and trust 
in his Savior and him alone for salvation. Man is, is a worshiper, made to worship something, and we see all the false religions here represented. Look at verse six. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. I, this is just, I mean, I'd be careful here. I always want to be careful about speculating. But in my mind, the more I study this, I believe that this one world religion that will uh, arise in the midst of the tribulation, it will fly under the banner of tolerance. As I study this, the more and more I, I'm like, how in the world are all these religions going to come together? And I think they will come together. And I think that we see this already occurring today. Listen, you can believe whatever you want to believe. I'll believe whatever I want to believe. Doesn't matter what you do. We're tolerant of all activities and all people and whatever they want to believe. And we'll just come underneath one person. It was very similar in Rome. You could do whatever you wanted to do, but you had to say Caesar is Lord. In the midst of the tribulation, all the religions of the world coming under one man, Antichrist. And they will tolerate everybody except who? Christians, the people of God. They tend to not like people who say that there is only one means of salvation, Jesus Christ. They tend to not like people who look at you and say that you are a sinner. And your only hope is not you. It's a perfect Savior who came and died for your sins. And here we see that this woman is drunk on the blood of the saints and the witnesses, meaning there will be a persecution in the midst of the tribulation unlike this world has ever seen. Then you look at verse 7, and the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. This beast that was and is not is about to come. I believe that's another reference to Antichrist's counterfeit religion. We talked about in Revelation 13 that he has a wound that is healed. And so there's some form of counterfeit, fake death resurrection, whatever you want to call it, that kind of counter, uh, catapults him into a place of power. Uh, Antichrist is going to have great power at the at the beginning of the tribulation for the first three and a half years. But in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years in, something happens that kind of catapults him to another level. And I believe it is this counterfeit resurrection. And so you'll see an individual who appears to have died and come back, and the world will be amazed. And at that point, he brings the world under his control. One world government, one false religion, religious system, all united under Antichrist. Then in verses 9 through 13, look at 9 through 13. It says, here's the mind which has wisdom. So God says, if you're wise, you have the knowledge of God, you know these things. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are the seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for an hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. We've talked about this before. Seven heads representing those seven worldwide kingdoms beginning after Genesis 11. What are they? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. 
Those are the kingdoms that have come, that have fallen prior to Rome. What is the, what is the worldwide empire that is? that have come, that is. Who is in control at the time of John's writing? Rome. So you have the five kingdoms that have come and have fallen. You've got Rome is the the worldwide kingdom that is. And then the kingdom that will come, this revived Roman empire. And this beast who has this counterfeit resurrection, he'll be part of the seventh, but he'll also be an eighth because he's gonna establish himself as king. And so you have the seven heads, the ten horns. You remember we've talked about this. These are these kings who have not come. They've not yet received a kingdom. They're that ten-nation confederacy in the midst of the tribulation. And so that's that revived Roman Empire that will come. The, The point here, though, I think that we're intended to see is that the woman rides on all these kingdoms, that she is this false religion that is being supported by all these governments. Then we look down in verse 14. Uh, These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are are the called and chosen and faithful. Kind of a powerful picture, if I can, try to give you a summary of this. At the beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist arises. He comes to power, but he, he conquers at least initially without war. Remember, he is in Revelation 6, pictured as the rider on the white horse who has a bow with no arrows. So Antichrist, the first part of the tribulation, he's going to conquer, but he's going to conquer by means of peace. And you'll see false government and Antichrist coexisting peacefully with one world religion. In the middle of the tribulation, something happens. There's a counterfeit uh, resurrection, and at that moment, he's catapulted. Some commentators, when it says here that he went to the abyss, they believe that to have mean that he went down into the place of Sheol or the abyss where he is empowered by a demon. I don't know about all this. I just know there's something in the middle that kind of catapults him forward, and we know that after that moment, he sets himself up in the temple as God, and everybody's got to bend the knee to him at that moment. You either worship Christ or you die. You take his mark or you cannot buy or sell. And he sets himself up. He unites all false government and all false religion under himself. And he leads. There's going to be this 10 nation confederacy and they're going to hand all their power over to Antichrist. And what is he going to do? He's going to lead all these nations to come against Jesus Christ. Do you know what's going to happen at the end? The two kingdoms that have always been the kingdom of Satan under the authority of Antichrist is going to come against the other kingdom, which is what? The kingdom of God under the authority of Jesus Christ. You're going to see the Lamb of God and the beast go head to head. And guess how that one's going to end? It's not going to go well for the beast. And Jesus Christ will put down all false religion and all false government. Don't you look forward? That's why I can't wait to get to Revelation 19. Come on. And all of it's done away with, and there's only Jesus Christ, priest and king. Then look at verse 15. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are, the, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. 
So harlot here, uh, the, the waters, that, that means that this false religion covers the earth. Her, her influence, as we've already seen, is pervasive. But guess who will turn against her ultimately? Be the politicians. Can you believe that? The politicians lie to her. And they turn on false religion. And God will use false government to bring about the end of false religion. The harlot is gone. Look at verses 17 through 18. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the earth. Notice what it says. God put it in their hearts. This is what I love about God. Even God can use evil to judge evil. This is a God who is sovereign that's going to use false government to bring about the end of false religion. And it says that all authority and power will be given to the beast until what? Until the words of God are fulfilled. A good reminder in all of this that God is sovereignly in control of every aspect of this. And then you'll notice as well, it says the woman, Babylon, which reigns. Present tense. Meaning false religion, the harlot, represents every other religion of the world that that rejects God and exalts man and has Satan as its source. This is so important for us to remember that every other religion of the world is not just another way to God. I just had a conversation with somebody in the last couple weeks saying, listen, but... That's their way. They're going to get to God their way. We'll get to God our way. No, listen to me. Every other religion of the world is a harlot. It's false religion. It may look attractive. It may look powerful. But in the end, it always leads to destruction. It doesn't lead to God. As Solomon said of the harlot, whoever goes into her goes to Sheol. It looks attractive, it looks good, but it always leads to destruction. God will destroy Babylon. All false religion, all false government, as we're gonna see next week, will be defeated, and Christ will reign as king and priest. Well, what do we do with this? That's the stuff that that weighs on my heart. What do we do with this tomorrow? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, I wanna just share with you what God's been working on me. I, want to, I hope you know this, that primarily when I study God's word, God's working on me. Uh, and I, for the most part, am just sharing with you what I learned and how God is teaching and correcting me. And that's why sometimes it gets personal and it gets emotional for me, because I'm sharing with you how God's been working on me. And I don't want to go beyond scripture here, but I just want to share with you some of what God has impressed upon my heart. And that's that often the harlot of false religion in our lives, it's not as blatant as idols and temples, is it? It's anything, the harlot of false religion, Babylon is anything that we give our hearts to other than God and his son, Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I know in my life, my heart and my life is constantly being bombarded with the false idols of power and wealth and stuff that are attempting to pressure me into compromising my total allegiance to Jesus Christ. And what John does here, guess what he does? He exposes Babylon. 
Uh, We're able to look past all the appearances and all the lies to see Babylon exposed in her true colors. And she is unspeakably ugly and repulsive. And she drinks the blood of the saints. That every time we feel our hearts being drawn to give allegiance to anyone or anything other than Christ, we must be able to look at it for what it is That it may appear harmless, it may appear attractive, but is a harlot that will lead you to death, and we need to call it what it is. As I was studying this, the verse that came to mind was 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Listen, the harlot of false religion is always floating like the trinkets of idols in front of our faces. Babylon seeking to take us in. That if you want to work your way up the corporate ladder, you have to do this or that. I was talking to an individual just recently. And he says it's so hard to live this stuff out today in the midst of a corporate secular environment. I understand. But you need to see it for what it is. As you're you're kind of pressured by the world to compromise in your total allegiance to Christ. The lie is that if you don't compromise, if you don't give a little in this area, that you'll never have the opportunities that will lead you to the top. And it's a lie of Satan because it won't lead you to the top. It'll lead you to destruction in hell. And you need to see it not just as a little compromise and not just as a little giving in. You need to see it as unfaithfulness to God. So John, what he does here is he exposes all the harlotry of false religion and allows us to see it for what it really is. To see it in its true colors and the ugliness and the filthiness of the harlotry of Babylon. For the non-believer, if you're here today, the pre-Christian, my word to you today as we've seen throughout this is that we are in a day of grace when God has extended a gospel invitation. But this day of grace and this opportunity to respond is not open-ended. And I believe now more than ever, we are closer and closer to the rapture I believe with all my heart that the rapture could occur any day. And I know there's some people that are probably thinking, well, Pastor, you've told us that some people will come to faith in Christ in the midst of the tribulation. Yes, that is true. But I'm gonna tell you, it'd be a whole lot better to trust him today. And the other word you need to know today, the author of Hebrews, he said to us, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You remember what Jesus said in John 6? No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And you are assuming that God's going to be drawing you tomorrow. That's a bad assumption. You don't pick and choose when God calls you. And if he's speaking in your heart today to trust him, I implore you with all my heart, trust in Christ and bend the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. 
Know his peace, know his freedom, know his grace today, and know the security that he will never leave you. Well, do we have a hymn? I disappointed in Pastor Kelly last week. And he's a better singer than me. I, I thought for sure y'all would get something, so we'll give you your money back for last week. young man named George Bernard, born in Youngstown, Ohio, grew up in Iowa. His father was a tavern owner and later became a coal miner. His father died when he was young. He came to faith in Christ at the age of 22 through the evangelistic work of the Salvation Army. And having given his life to Christ, He felt the call of God to become a traveling evangelist. In 1912, during a revival meeting in Michigan, he was heckled by a group of youth. And he said he went back to his room. And he wasn't angry. He was more depressed. He was disturbed by their blatant disregard for Jesus who died on the cross for their sins. He was disturbed at how somebody could despise and heckle the Savior who died in their place. That what they despised was what he most treasured. He went back to his room that evening and began to write the words to one of our most well-known hymns, The Old Rugged Cross. It was later picked up by the evangelist Billy Sunday. Boy, old Billy Sunday, he could preach. I was reminding him this week, he was the one who said there's too many, uh, what did he say? Uh, Chubby-cheeked, weak-kneed, feminine pastors. (laughs) that's a man that'll call you out right there (laughs) but he picked up this hymn and they used it as a part of his evangelistic crusades on so many of occasions the world has all the accoutrements of religion it looks pretty, it looks good but it doesn't lead to salvation and holiness you know what we have? we have an old rugged cross so despised by the world, but we cherish that old rugged cross. Y'all want to sing that this morning? Why don't we stand to our feet this morning? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay. I will clean 
that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me for the dear lamb of god left his glory above to bear it to dark in a Southern Baptist church, we never sang the third verse. Did y'all ever experience that? So many times. This week I read the third verse. It's now my favorite. I can't believe we skipped this verse. Let's sing this together. You think about these words. In the old rugged cross Stained with blood so divine such a wonderful beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died. for the old rugged cross. We're so grateful that you saw us in our lost and sinful and dead condition. And you sent your son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray if there's somebody who's not bent the knee, turned from their sin and repentance and placed their faith in Christ, today would be the day of salvation for them. They trust in Christ, the King of kings. Know his lordship, know his salvation, know his freedom and his forgiveness. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would cling even more faithfully to the cross, not compromising in any way, giving total allegiance to the King of Kings, knowing that he's coming again someday. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.